Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, as we see COVID cases soar, another anti-mask rally being planned for London. These protests, of course, run the risk of bringing even more COVID-19 to the area. We'll get some reaction from the Medical Officer of Health. New pandemic modeling is showing that we could go to 20,000 cases a day by the end of December. How do we make sure that's not going to happen? We'll discuss that. I heard a lot about the economy being in trouble because of COVID-19, but a professor from Brock University has proposed what we need to do to make a comeback. You'll listen to that story. It's interesting stuff. And Professor Henry Jasek from McMaster University joins us to chat about the bizarre U.S. election non-results. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We mentioned uh, a couple of weeks ago when there was the anti-mask rally that uh, went on in Aylmer, and then this past weekend, of course, in St. Thomas, we kind of wondered, okay, who's going to be next? Well, apparently it's going to be the city of London. Uh, and that's uh, scheduled for this weekend. Uh, what they call a family-friendly anti-mask rally is going to be held in London uh, this coming weekend. Joining us to talk about masking in general is uh, Dr. Christopher Mackey. Uh, Dr. Mackey, of course, is the Medical Officer of Health for Middlesex London Health Unit. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Pleasure, Bill. Thanks for having me. Among all the frustrations that I think a lot of us have been feeling, but especially people like yourself, doctor, in the medical field, it's got to be frustrating above all else that that this thing about wearing masks to try to stop the spread has now become a political issue. It's hard to imagine a a stupider thing to do. We had, you know, 2,000 people from across Ontario gather in Aylmer, uh, just outside of London, a few weeks ago. Uh, That generated many cases of COVID-19 in Aylmer and elsewhere. Uh, this is just, it's really dangerous. Well, and there's, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to ask anybody to try to defend this because it's indefensible as far as I'm concerned. Because uh, I've maintained on this program for a long, long time here, I think what part of the reason we're seeing some spiking numbers, and we're going to talk about the new projections in just a couple of minutes on the program here, is because I think the government has been slow to react. Not municipal governments, but the federal and provincial governments, uh, slow to react about having a, a blanket masking uh, program and mandated masking, uh, which we still don't have here in Ontario. I know London, of course, has done this, and many local councils have done this. But uh, the, the science is there, isn't it, Doctor? The, the jurisdictions like New Zealand, Australia, Hong Kong, and others that have done that have not just flattened the curve, they wiped the curve out. Yeah, no, uh, masking takes uh, a major role right now in our fight against COVID. And until we have a vaccine in place, there are precious few tools. Physical distancing and masking are, you know, the top two. And uh, the, the science early on was not as clear, but it's now clear. Uh, masking is not perfect, but it makes a big difference in reducing the spread. Well, uh, I think we all were hoping that wave two would come later, slower, and not hit as hard as wave one. We're seeing the exact opposite. You know, numbers in Ontario are now twice what they were at the peak of wave one and climbing steeply. Do do you get the, the sense that they are, the, especially the people that are making the decisions and, and developing these strategies, do they understand the, the severity of what's going on here? The magnitude I, of I know it? they do. It's just, you know, there, there are different visions of how to best bring our society through this. Uh, I know that the government is also recognizing all of the non-infectious disease impacts that COVID has had. And we know shutdowns make a difference for health in a negative way as well with mental health, uh, addictions, domestic violence. There are issues that shutdowns cause, and I think the government is very attuned to those. Um, the, the, from my perspective, it, the restrictions we have in place are really important because they will blunt the peak, they will delay the peak, give us time to get vaccine in the door. 
And, and masking has to be part of that. And I, I know that, you know, when people want to make arguments against it, and I'm sure you've heard dozens of the, the supposed uh, rationalizations for this, uh, your point's well taken. I mean, in the springtime, uh, when Dr. Tam and others said, well, we don't necessarily think they're necessary at this stage, they didn't say don't wear them. Because one of the rationales at that time was we didn't know enough equipment anyway. Uh, and we wanted to save that for frontline workers, you know, people in hospitals and, and other situations like that. Uh, we have lots of, of, of PPE now. Uh, and as you say, the science is in. We, we know a lot more about COVID-19 than we did in February. We know more how to treat it uh, for people that are going to be hospitalized. We know a lot more about it. And masking is, is one of the, I think, the key parts of, of the battle against this, is it not? Absolutely. And we also know about what masks are effective. Uh, there's actually a great piece uh, on uh, CBC that compared a bunch of different masks. But, you know, when, when you've got a, a three-layer mask, that's ideal. That's the sort of protection that uh, reduces the spread the most. Anything helps, but if you can get a three-layer mask, uh, that makes the most difference. And you see, in, especially in London, Middlesex area, do you see overall compliance? I mean, there's this, there's this crowd, which, by the way, from what we see is probably most of the same crowd that was in St. Thomas and Aylmer a couple of weeks before that. Uh, there, there seems to be a traveling road show that they're doing right now, but do you see compliance generally within the population? We've had excellent compliance since the summer when we implemented masking. It was really overnight. Uh, there are a few pockets, and there are, uh, what I would say, you know, subgroups that, where the message doesn't resonate or doesn't get through because people aren't, you know, listening to your show, Bill, or uh, other, otherwise consuming the mainstream media. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but, uh, but we've had, in general, very good compliance. You walk into a store here, people are masked. Uh, and you had some concerns, of course, about the, uh, the Western campus. And I know there's another outbreak. I, was it one of the dorms? Uh, there a number of students that uh, have had to isolate as a result. Uh, but again, that seems to be, you know, it's, it's not the commercial enterprises. It's not the schools themselves. It's people just deciding that, yeah, we're going to get together when they really shouldn't. Well, exactly. And, and you've got a, you know, a large concentration of adolescent sort of people. Uh, and yes, they're adults and they can make their own decisions, but they're also you know, in that risk-taking phase of life. And so the uh, vast majority of students in at Western are doing a great job of respecting guidelines. But uh, unfortunately, if you get together, and it's enough to cause an outbreak sometimes. Are you confident? I, I know this is the vaccine down there, Doctor, but are you confident that, that we can stem the tide here? The numbers that we're seeing now uh, from Health Canada are pretty frightening. As you say, we're worse off than we were in the springtime. Yeah, I mean, I think the measures that we're implementing it's really a goal of trying to balance with minimal disruption of society who's still protecting the most vulnerable. Uh, and we've been able, at least in Middlesex and London, to be pretty successful there. You know, we had 57 deaths in the first wave, only six in the second wave, in spite way higher numbers of cases. Uh, so it's a sign that that firewall we're putting around long-term care, retirement homes, and other vulnerable groups is holding. Uh, but, you know, if you look around the world, there isn't really a jurisdiction that's been able to flatten their curve without significant lockdown measures. And so what we're doing right now is more buying time than anything else. Uh, ragging the puck until the vaccine becomes available, to use a Canadian phrase. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I wish you luck with it, doctor. Uh, and I guess the advice for everybody in the area, I guess they're going to be going through the downtown area. I don't know what it's going to be, or probably near City Hall. That's where they tend to want to gather. Uh, ignore them. All right, you know, it's, it, they have the right to assemble, I get that, but uh, as uh, the late Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan once said, uh, you're entitled to your own opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts, and uh, I think that's what we need to keep in mind here. 
Yeah, and uh, you're not entitled to put others' lives at risk. So that's exactly. uh, that's a major concern. Exactly. Doctor, thanks so much for this. Uh, have a great weekend, nonetheless, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Take care. Dr. Chris Mackey, of course, Medical Officer of Health for uh, the London Middlesex area and the health unit. Uh, you know, just, you know, okay, let them say what they're going to say. Ignore it. Don't get into an argument with them. You're not going to change their minds, and they're certainly not going to change yours. If you're masking, and you should be, you're doing the right thing, and that's all there is to it. End of dis- discussion, end of debate. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, as we mentioned, new modeling numbers are coming out, and uh, it's it's pretty scary. Uh, the numbers. Uh, as a matter of fact, about three hours ago, when uh, we were talking, our producer Liz and I were talking about the shows, and we were looking at the numbers that were there from last night, and they were projecting possibly 20,000 new cases per day uh, by the end of December. Well, they've revised those numbers. 60,000 cases a day are possible by the end of December. Uh, boy, we've never seen numbers that high. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Dr. Isaac Bogosh. Uh, Dr. Bogosh, of course, is a staff physician, general internal medicine and infectious disease at the uh, University of Toronto. Uh, Doc, good to have you back on the show. Hope you're doing well these days. Oh, hey, nice to chat. Yeah, happy to be back. Let's uh, let's talk about uh, the 60,000 projection. Uh, is, is, is this a worst-case scenario, or is this is the way the curve's going right now? It looks, it, it, some people anywhere are talking in the terms of this is inevitable. I'd like to think that's not the case. No, I don't think it's inevitable. I think what those models are showing are that if we increase our number of contacts, uh, we, we can have up to 60,000 new cases in Canada by end of December. If we continue along the status quo, we may have around 20,000 new cases. And, of course, if we take some measures to keep things under tighter control, we can have about 10,000 cases. All of those scenarios are, are bad, by the way. Like, mm-hmm. even the good scenario, even when we reduce our contacts, that's not a lot. We don't want to have 10,000 cases of COVID-19 in Canada on a daily basis. Even when you divide that up among our population, that's a lot of work to do. That's a lot of people that might get sick. That's a lot of people that might land in hospital. So, you know, we're, we're clearly in a rough spot. If anything, this means that we should be significantly pivoting and really taking it a lot more seriously at the gov- government slash public health level to drive these cases lower. We're expecting a, an announcement of some description from the Prime Minister at 11, 11.30 this morning. Of course, the Pre- Premier Ford has his daily briefing, and he's going to do another one of those later on this afternoon as well. It, it, when you finish this discussion with us, Doctor, and, and the Prime Minister calls you and says, look, uh, Doc, what, what should we be doing that we're not doing right now? What would you tell him? Well, I, I think there's a couple of things. There's sort of high level and then there's details. But really at a high level, it's really time to look critically and in an evidence, evidence-based manner of what are the drivers of infection in your community, right? If it's not coming from restaurants and bars with all the um, measures in place to keep them safe, why add additional measures to that? You know, if they, you know, really look at where it's coming from. Is it coming from private gathering in people's private gatherings in people's homes? Is it coming from different sectors of the economy that are just challenging to close, like like industrial settings and factory settings? Is it is it in inter, intergenerational homes where people are you know getting infected in the community and then bringing it back? And really, like, let's focus uh, upstream and look at what are the drivers of infection. And some of these might be some hard truths, right? Like, there's a lot of inequities in, in our society, and it's tough to address those. It's easy to talk about them, but it's actually significantly challenging to address them. And a lot of that might be the root cause of, of infection. The other thing, too, is I would take a step back and fundamentally reevaluate every pillar 
of our pandemic response. How's diagnostic testing going? How can we improve that? How's contact tracing going? How can we improve that? How's our surveillance system going to detect cases in, in uh, places that might have them? How can we improve that? How's our, how's our case management going? How can we improve that? How's our community engagement and communication approaches to help drive positive behavior? And how can we improve that? I'd really look at every one of those fundamental pillars. What about masking? Uh, you know, we, oh, no-brainer. Mask. Uh, I, I would think so. Uh, and, I, I, and to their credit, many, many municipalities and communities have adopted the, the bylaw. Uh, but our, our federal and provincial governments, well, the Ontario government anyway, have yet to go down that road. And every country that has knocked this thing down, doctor, as you know, has had a, a mandatory masking program. Uh, okay. I, so I'm all, first of, a couple of points. One, I'm all for masks. I've only said it 8 trillion times <laughs> in the media about put a mask when you go on indoors. Okay. That's, that's pretty straightforward. Um, and I think that it, it, this is interesting. You know, how many people, how many people aren't wearing masks? Is that actually a thing? I mean, I live between my house and the hospital and I've no clue what's actually happening in the outside world, but like, are there really places where we have decent amounts of transmission where people are not putting on masks when they go indoors? And my and I'm asking because I actually don't know. Because I think that there's a lot of masking. And of course, yeah, there might be some people who aren't. Uh, but like, how significant is that? Like, I just, I, I'm asking, I, like, I really, I really don't uh, Listen, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of in the same boat you are. I, I mean, I've been working out of the house here since March 15th and uh, looking out the window a lot. And I, but, you know, the odd trip to the pharmacy and stuff like that. But it seems yeah. to still be an issue. I mean, you know, Saskatchewan, of course, imposed this just the other day uh, when they yeah. saw their numbers starting to spike. And, yeah, uh, I mean, I think it's reasonable. I mean, you've got to get people to put on a mask. And, and there's a lot of ways to do it. I, I, Alberta did it in an interesting way. I'm not saying Alberta is a success story, but I think they did it in an interesting way. I think they knew what their challenges, some of the challenges were going to be with masking in the province. And they basically gave out masks for free. They gave them out like Halloween candy. They gave them out at all the shelters. They gave them out in uh, indigenous communities. They gave them out in drive through restaurants at like McDonald's and A&W. And I think that they really tried to sort of desensitize uh, communities to this before mandates started to come. But like, I mean, like there always is a time to pull the trigger to mandate mm-hmm. it. And of course, if you're, you know, you, you don't really have time to for populations or groups that ne- didn't have a mandate. Like that was your time to desensitize your population to it. Now it's like you, you've got spiking cases. Like, I don't think there's any issue with having a mandate for these right now. I really don't. But my question is, you know, I, I'm just asking out of curiosity. Like, so so that's the point. Masks are good. We yeah. should putting, be putting on masks. If you have spiking cases, or you're in a crisis. Hopefully, you spent your time wisely to desensitize people to masking by giving them out before you mandated. But yeah, of course, it's, it's totally the time to do that if it hasn't been done, and, and you should mandate them. And the, the third thing is, and here's the just the skeptic in the, I don't know, I'm just curious. Like, how many people aren't actually wearing masks, and will that mandate in and of itself? Like, how much does that contribute? Because I suspect that a lot of people are wearing masks, and yeah, there's going to be some stragglers and people that aren't. But again, I'm living in a weird bubble between my home and the hospital, and I, I don't actually know. So just uh, I, curious. I got about a minute left here. I wanted to get your comment, uh, Doctor, on one other thing too. We've been critical of some of the things the government has and has not done here, uh, but I applaud the provincial government for for not extending the Christmas break for kids because uh, I think the numbers indicate that they're safer in school than they would be if they were staying home. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah yeah yeah. Like let's be clear, infection has been introduced to schools. We knew that sure. was going to happen. 
infection has been transmitted within schools, okay, but it just hasn't happened to the extent that many would have predicted. Uh, and that's clearly good. And, of course, if you keep kids home from school, that means a parent has to stay home from work or is distracted. This disproportionately impacts women. It's terrible for women. Uh, it's terrible for single parents. And uh, I, I think they made the right move. I do, too. Uh, doctor, always great to get your perspective. Thanks for uh, taking some time for us today. Have a great weekend. Stay you safe. You Be well. Take care. Take care. Dr. Isaac Bogosh, of course, from the University of Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. What we're expecting to hear, at least from the premier anyway, are more uh, restrictions on industries, uh, tighten things down because of these spiking numbers we've seen with COVID-19. And and we have argued, and I think it, it's worthy of debate, whether or not that's the right strategy. Uh, you know, do the numbers indicate that, that it's small businesses, restaurants, bars, gyms? Is that where the, the spike is happening? Is that where the new cases are coming from? Uh, I don't think so. And there's a great piece in the, the conversation uh, this week that, that deals with this. Uh, it's, it's called Want to Save the Economy? Start by Vanquishing COVID-19. The author of that uh, piece is uh, Blaine Haggard, who is an associate professor of political science at Brock University. And uh, Professor Haggard joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, professor, great to have you back in the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Glad to be here. Uh, I, I, I want to talk about some of the details in here. And as you mentioned in the first couple of paragraphs, uh, as we get ready for another lockdown, it seems as if we're heading in that direction again. Uh, and we saw, you know, we did this, in the, as you mentioned in the piece earlier this year, it didn't really work that well. Uh, but you had also cited places like Australia, New Zealand, South Korea, and Taiwan that have crushed the curve. How did they do it? What did they do that we're not doing? Um, well, I guess the best way to think about it is that... Uh, like for instance, our, uh, our 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 actions in the spring and, and early summer weren't a failure. They actually got numbers down. But what happened is we basically left. You know, we uh, we stopped too early and we kind of opened up and we got complacent about it. Whereas when you look at, for instance, at Australia and particularly Melbourne has become kind of the uh, big example for this. They kept very very stringent restrictions on until like they were dealing with like single digit numbers in the entire state of of Victoria. Um, we did not do that. Yeah, it, it, in hindsight, I mean, you look back on this, and I remember as we started in this, and I guess it was around the middle of March when they started the shutdown, mm. uh, they, they told us what the goal was. I think it was something like three weeks of steady declines to, to flatten the curve. That was the phrase that was being used. And I don't know that too many jurisdictions actually achieved that. They, the numbers did go down, as you mentioned. But, uh, you know, to, to use the phrase, we took our foot off the gas. And, and, you know, it was summertime anyway, so people were going outside. So we thought, that's it. I guess this has worked. Uh, and now we're seeing that, uh, yeah, maybe not so well as we thought. Yeah, I mean, and part of it is we just decided that we were going to, you know, keep mingling. And, you know, we were going to, you know, we were going to put in restrictions, but they weren't really restrictions. A lot of it was just kind of for show. And a lot of it was like, you know, we're going to be keep moving in this area, but we're going to restrict our, you know, number of gatherings in another area. So, you know, we had inconsistent messaging. We also had like lack of, you know, supports for for businesses to stay closed and for workers not to uh, go into work if they're uh, if they're feeling ill, which is how this thing uh, spreads. And so, it really was a kind of it was, uh, you know, not respecting the virus in in a sense that. And again, when we look at Australia. Um, like they started to freak out when their numbers started to go into like six and seven hundred, and they just locked everything down. Um, they took it very, very seriously, and it was very hard for a lot of for for Melbournians and and for Australians. But they've gotten through it now, and now they they're kind of reaping the uh, rewards. 
there's a, a debate going on right now, and, and it's probably going to just, you know, I, I would think magnify after we hear what the premiers have to say later on today. Uh, that it's 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 got to be either or. We either got to keep things open and, and deal with this, and we're just going to see these spikes. It, it's public health or the economy, they, and, and they have to they have to say pick one or the other. Do we have to really make that choice? Well, not really. I mean, this has been the most frustrating thing as someone who uh, you know was uh, before I became a political scientist. I was an economist. Um, looking at the, uh, the the research that's been done in the area, um, economists have been pretty remarkably consistent from the very beginning of going back to March, saying that the path to a healthy economy goes through uh, crushing, basically crushing the curving and, uh, and if not eradicating COVID-19, bringing it strictly, strictly under control. Because even without, uh, even without government intervention of any kind, people are going to restrict their movements, their activities uh, below what they would normally do because a lot of people don't want to get sick and they know that you get sick by interacting with people. So economists have, have recognized that economic policy should follow health policy in this area. You uh, you mentioned in the piece something called negative externalities. Maybe explain that to our listeners. Yeah, it, it's it's basically a, you know a fancy economic term for situations in which uh, in cases where um, individually rational choices that make sense for for an individual to do have big negative social consequences. So, for instance. If, uh, you know, there's a, there's a pandemic going on. So individually, it's rational for me to not go to a restaurant for a hamburger. Um, but of course, that it causes a huge social problem for, for the businesses. Um, and on the opposite side of that, if you are lower income and you need your job to work and your, your, uh, your, uh, your job involves interacting with the public or getting into close quarters, you're going to do that regardless. So individually rational, socially disastrous. Um, and when you've got a situation like that, which is what economists call negative externalities, that's where governments, like pretty much across the board, right or left, economists will tell you that's where government has to get involved through, in this case, and basically to address that, um, to, um, to make it easier um, through financial support for workers to stay home um, and to provide support to businesses to make sure that they, uh, you know, that they can stay afloat during what is going to be kind of an ongoing rough economic time until uh, the pandemic is over. Maybe the best example of that, well, we talk about frontline workers, but I think, you know, in March or February of this year, if you said frontline workers, not too many people would have thought of grocery store clerks, but they were. Uh, they kept us fed. They kept us alive. Uh, but they, w- they were taking a risk. I mean, they're not medically, medically trained professionals. But to their credit, the government did step in. They, you know, they increased their pay, uh, you know, made sure that there's PPE for them and things of that nature. And that's, that's, I guess that's the, the role of government in a situation like that. Absolutely. To make sure that they, you know, that you can get, that there's an easily uh, accessible sick leave. That, so it's not just, you know, that they've got, that workers have the right to, uh, to uh, demand sick leave, but that the government will step in because sometimes, you know, businesses, they're dealing with their stuff too. Um, the government should be there to make sure that, uh, that people aren't forced to make a decision between their health and, uh, and, their, and their economic survival. You, you talked about governments having to make tough choices, and, and again, I, I don't even want to try to anticipate what we're going to hear later on today from uh, the Prime Minister and the Premier. Uh, i got a pretty good inkling, but we'll see what happens there. Uh, but, you know, they've been accused uh, in varying degrees of going through half measures as opposed to the tough choices and the tough decisions that some of the places we just talked about, like New Zealand and Australia. Uh, is it too late to go back and, and say, no, we have to have to hit reset here? Um, okay. Well, that's a kind of, I think that would be a question for an epidemiologist or a medical doctor. Um, you know, 
what I can say on the on the economic and maybe the public policy side of things is that um, the cost to society, um, both economically and in terms of you know vulnerable communities, it's going to continue regardless until this uh, until the pandemic is dealt with. And the economic side of things is that um, is that you're not going to have a recovery. Businesses are going to continue to have uncertainty, even if we have kind of a, a temporary lockdown or if we restrict restaurants to 10 people. That's not sustainable in the long run. Um, governments have to take kind of decisive uh, action. And what we've seen from uh, countries like Australia, like New Zealand, is that this can actually work, which is, you know, that's, uh, you know, that counts, I think, for a lot or should count for a lot. Yeah, and I wanted you to uh, you know, focus on the economic side of things. You're, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, masking or, or all this other stuff and social distancing uh, is is out of the realm of the economy. But at the same token, it has an impact on the economy, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. I mean, one thing you know, I, I guess from as an, you know, putting on my uh, uh, economist hat, um, the one thing that you would say is that you want to make sure that uh, the public health measures that our uh, our public health officers are, are demanding and say that we need are actually going to be funded. So things like isolation facilities, which is something, you know, that we haven't really spent any time or money on, even though it's shown to be kind of very, you know, it's kind of important. Um, money enough for tra- uh, tracking, money enough for testing, um, and all of that. Um, so, the, yeah, the, the economic thing would say, listen to, the, listen to the health professionals, make sure that they have all the resources they need, and you know, at this point, I don't think that they do. As you the, the, talk about the total shutdown aspect of this, and and, uh, and again, I don't know what they're, they're going to announce today, but if if they said that, look, we have to bring the hammer down. I know this is going to hurt, uh, but it's what has to be done. Uh, based on on what you've seen from some of the other jurisdictions and some of the other countries, uh, Professor, uh, what would that is that what would that look like? Is it a two week, three week, four week period where we just say, look at everybody, that it's just time out. Um, again, that's more of a that would be more kind of a, for medical doctors to answer. But basically, it would be uh, in Australia. It was till they were down into single digits. Okay. Um, and so, in other words, that community transmission was not really a problem, or it, it was uh, it was not really uh, prevalent. Um, they just kind of kept at it, and it was it was very hard. I mean, they closed borders. They you know they had uh, they had police uh, effectively you know shutting down anti anti mask riots, and there were a lot of protests around that but the the justification what for that was that these are things that we need to do in order to let everyone essentially uh, you know have the freedom to go around without worrying that they're going to be sick or that they are going to die or that they might um, cause their parents to die the, uh, this problem I see though if they had done that in March uh, when they announced the shutdown, it was March 15th, I still remember it vividly, it's the last time I was at the radio station, yeah. uh, there might have been more buy-in to it and said, look, at it, we don't like this, but we don't know what this pandemic's like. I, I guess they know what they're doing, so they would have done it. I don't know that the public would buy into it right now because we've been doing this for so long, and, and as you say, kind of gliding and hoping things were going to get better with the, not the numbers we wanted, but they were lower than you know they were in February. Um, I, I don't know if there's going to be a pushback if they said we have to shut everything down for a while. I, I mean, from an economic standpoint, not from a health standpoint. Yeah. No, no, sure. Um, yeah, I think as, as it suggests, the, the health uh, the health approach would be pretty obvious. And I think you're probably right about the about the pushback. But at the same time, too, that you know, the job of politicians and leaders is to lead, is to say this is what has to be done, and to make the case. Uh, the other, you know, there's some evidence that suggests. That, for instance, that when it comes to like right now, people are not really worried about deficits, um, you know, and, and the level of the debt. This is, you know, this has been a kind of a big change in Canadian politics. Mm-hmm. 
judged not necessarily on the strength of the economy, which, as uh, Stephen Gordon points out in Bruce Arthur's column in The Star this morning, says that, you know, hard lockdowns, soft lockdowns, there hasn't been really that much, uh, we haven't done much better with a soft lockdown economically. But politicians will be judged, uh, according to some evidence, by the, num- the COVID numbers. So by, by like kind of muddling along with this uh, economic plan that isn't really going to work for the economy, and it's not working for health numbers, uh, you could also argue that they're basically setting themselves up for a huge backlash, especially when people can see in Australia, in New Zealand, that people are kind of meeting in groups and hanging out and going to restaurants. Um, that's a pretty; those are pretty powerful images. And if uh, if uh, those images get replayed a lot in Canadian papers and on TV, um, it can make a lot of people angry. At because you know we could have that. There's no reason why we can't have that, even though it requires sacrifice. It's a, a failing of the government to simply say, look, you know, we want numbers that are lower than they are right now. Uh, whereas, I, as I remember, the, the New Zealand Prime Minister, anyway, when she was talking about the success that they've enjoyed down there, uh, they set their target at zero. Uh, yeah. they, you know, you, don't, you never get there, of course, but she got darn close to it. Uh, and she said, look, this is it. I mean, these are numbers. We don't want to just bend the curve. We want to knock the curve down. And that's how they've done it. They, they said, look, we're not going to let it up. We're not going to open the doors. We're not going to turn the lights on again until we're there. And uh, we, yeah. we, we seem to, you know, just, well, I don't think we can do that. Sure we can. They did it. Yeah, and, and the promise is that if we do this, it, it, a, here's the trade-off. If we do this, it will help the economy and it will help keep people alive. If we don't do it, just expect a repeat of this in a, in a few months' time. Uh, there is a vaccine coming, knock on wood, but, you know, the, more, the fewer people we have actually infected, at, you know, at the time, the easier it will be to, to roll it out and, you know, the less chaotic things will be. Um, so that, that's the promise. The, the, the current system is, the current plan is not working from a health perspective. It's not working from an economic perspective. Um, so it would be, you would imagine it should be incumbent on us to do something else, something better. Well, I, one of the phrases that really stuck with me is uh, back in the, the, well, the presidential debates that were going on, if now President-elect Biden uh, seemed mm-hmm. to have a consistent theme. He says, you're not going to get the economy back until you beat the virus. That's all there is to it. Yeah, and I mean, that, again, that's what's absolutely, you know, in, in a sense, uh, surprising to me because, like I said, the economics on this has been straightforward from, the very, from, from day one. It, this has been absolutely obvious. You know, we... You know, that said, you know, I do want to give a little bit of, uh, you know, you know, credit or leeway to, to, our, to our governments because they were dealing with unprecedented situations. And sure. people and businesses are, you know, they're rightfully worried about, about you know, their futures. Um, you know, I've got friends in the, in the restaurant business. But, you know, we have to learn from, you know, if something is working, we have to change it. So uh, what I, you know, what I do appreciate about all the governments in, on, in Canada is that they are trying? They they don't want to they don't want to hurt people. They want to do their best, but the problem is that the policy that they're following right now isn't going to get them where they want to go. Well, and and there's a phrase that keeps coming up here when we have this conversation. It's about consumer confidence. I mean, the economy will get better when we feel comfortable going into a restaurant or a movie theater. Uh, I'm, this last week in November, Professor, I, I should be at the Grey Cup this week. Uh, you know, <laughs> season ticket holders for the Tiger Cats, but uh, I understand. I don't want to go to a stadium with 25,000 other people while this thing is, is raging. So, you know, we've done what we've done right now, but, you know, we're, we're 
hankering for for, for the, a sense of, of normality right now, but that consumer confidence isn't going to come back until we say, yeah, I can go to a football game or a baseball game or a hockey game because I'm not going to get sick. I might catch cold like some people do, but I'm not going to get COVID. And we're not there yet. Yeah. And I, I think the, you mentioned earlier about, you know, have we missed our opportunity to do this. And it's, it's right in the sense, or it's not quite right, but it's, it's the longer we wait, the higher the cost is going to be and the harder it's going to be to get these numbers down and to, and to deal with the fallout. Um, we should have done this several months ago. But, you know, if we delay any longer, it's just going to delay the, delay the inevitable. It's going to delay the cost. It, political will is has got to be part of this, and and it's it, like you say, it's hard choices and it's hard realities. But uh, I, I guess what you know should actually substantiate a lot of what they should be doing here is, as you point out in the piece today in the conversation, uh, there's there's evidence here. I mean, there there are there's a there's already a, a precedent set for this by a lot of other countries that did this, and so it's not as if we're breaking new ground here. I and mean, you know we know a lot more about it now. We know that what they did worked. We. I hope are going to move down that road, but well, sooner than later. I hope, anyway. Yeah, and, and there's there's an end in sight. There's uh, you know there's a vaccine on the horizon, as uh, as uh, Dr. David Fisman has pointed out. Um, we're about we're halfway through the, the pandemic, and the and pandemics run, uh, you know, they're they're phenomenal. They have their their own course, so we're halfway through it. We're, this will end at some point. You know, the question is, what's going to be the the cost along the way? And I honestly do think that. The political cost, you know, talking about political will, um, you know, it should be manageable because you can promise something. And if you can promise and deliver, you'd imagine that would make you bulletproof in the next election. Yeah, there is a political upside to this, too. Uh the uh, webpage is theconversation.com, and uh, the piece is called Want to Save the Economy? Start by Vanquishing COVID-19. Uh, Professor, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Uh, congratulations on the piece. Uh, here's hoping that they're reading this in Ottawa on Queen's Park right now. Uh, thank you very much. <laughs> Good talking with you again. Take care. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.